The Athletic. Hello and welcome to Aramco F1 Focus, the podcast that aims to get you thinking about Grand Prix racing that little bit differently. I'm Tim Sylvie and I'm joined as always by two gentlemen whose racing brain power is second to none, Sean Virtual Statman Kelly and racing driver and broadcaster Alex Brundle. Sean, whenever we speak, you're either on the move or about to go on the move. So where do we find you this time? I have just sat down at Heathrow Airport, which I'm convinced is sinking under the amount of rain that's landing in the UK today. But it has to be raining. It's July. There's Wimbledon. There's the British Grand Prix. It's tradition. It is, absolutely, yes. It's completely pouring here as well. You are not alone. Alex, where do we find you? I think this could be the proximity podcast. I think this could be the closest we've all ever podcasted from. I am at home uh, in London and watching the same rainfall. Such excitement. (laughs) Good stuff. Well, as usual, Alex will be bringing his driver's eye to deliver us some original observations about the latest on-track action in his performance focus. But first, it's time for some more numerological wizardry from a certain stat man. Thank you, producer Johnny, for that little tongue twister. Okay, let's get going with Sean's stat focus. Now, I don't want to overhype this too much, Sean, but I fear I will anyway. I believe that this week, in your segment, we have something of a world exclusive. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, well, unless you were watching F1 races on mute this week, and possibly even if you did watch it on mute, um, you will have heard a lot of talk about Verstappen's chase of the all-time record for consecutive laps in the lead of a Grand Prix. Now, Verstappen has been taking on the record books on so many levels since the beginning of 2022, most notably winning the most races in a single season last year, while also winning from eight different grid positions in the last 18 months. And that's only one short of Fernando Alonso's record for an entire career. And should he win this weekend at this British Grand Prix, Verstappen will become only the fifth driver in history to win six consecutive Grand Prix. Yet it was the streak of consecutive laps led that held the imagination of stat watchers such as myself, simply because it's one of the oldest standing of all of the Grand Prix records. Alberto Ascari has owned the record of 305 consecutive laps led since 1952, the third season of World Championship racing. But in the normal process of cross-referencing records and doing a deeper dive on the numbers before we did our broadcast this weekend, I discovered that Ascari's total may have been wrongly reported all these years. Now, before we get any deeper into that particular error that you found, let's talk first about laps led by Max Verstappen. How many laps did he lead consecutively and how do you rate that versus laps led in the 1950s? Which era is more impressive? Well, Verstappen pitted from the lead in the Austrian Grand Prix at the end of lap 24. And in doing so, Charles Leclerc inherited the lead. and Verstappen's streak ended at 248 in a row. That's the third longest streak in history, beaten only by Ayrton Senna, led 264 consecutive laps in that McLaren, the 1988 McLaren MP44. And that streak was ended by that collision with Jean-Louis Schlesser at Monza. The streak was ongoing when Schlesser and Senna collided, and that cost McLaren their perfect season in 1988. The only race they didn't win was Monza. And the only one above that, of course, is Ascari's apparently disputed 305 
in a row. We don't count the sprint laps as yet because obviously sprints are a new concept. There may be some point down the line where we have a separate category for sprints or a separate category for a combined, but we're not going there just yet. As regards which is the more impressive, then versus now, well, in the early 1950s, races were far, far longer in terms of distance covered and, and or time. The regulations back then stipulated that the race must be a minimum of either three hours or 500 kilometers, which of course these days, it's you know a maximum of two hours racing or uh, 300, just over 300 kilometers. Um, in the early 50s, far less reliability, you had much more human error, there was no computers to help you uh, on the mechanical side, on the engineering side, and drivers had to do a lot more at the wheel. They had to make sure that they made every shift cleanly, they had to make sure they didn't burn the clutch out and so on. These days, you have bulletproof reliability. That's not so much of a big deal anymore. You know, we've got so many races lately where everybody has, everybody who started the race has finished the race. The biggest obstacle to leading that many laps in a row is your pit strategy and safety cars and red flags. If you come in on a normal pit strategy, you could easily surrender the lead. And it's not possible, uh, if you have a totally normal dry race, it's not possible to go the whole distance without a pit stop. It is necessary to come in and pit at some stage. Which one is better? Well, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder, I would say. Now, I can only imagine the depths that you've gone to in order to give this particular error credibility. Sean, what have you found and how on earth did you find it? Well, if you're to go to the official Formula One website, you'll find the results of the 1952 French Grand Prix show that Alberto Ascari won a 77-lap race from leading start to finish, and it was ended once it reached the three-hour mark. Now, this is also backed up contemporaneously by the August 1952 issue of Motorsport magazine, which I know both of you own, um, and also on some statistical websites. However, the sort of industry standard for motorsports, that's forex.com, along with uh, David Hayhoe's fantastic reference book, The Knowledge, lists a 76 lap race, one lap less. And all of a sudden we had a conflict. Did Ascari lead 305 laps in a row, or did he only lead 304 laps in a row? So I convened what I like to call the statistician's conclave which is every now and again, when there's something I'm not sure on, I bring together the most experienced minds in the industry who can deliberate over these disputed numbers into a very sort of uh, anally retentive way and reach a consensus. So in this conclave, I had myself, David Hayhoe, Steve Small, who's a fantastic statistics author, Bryn Williams, the, uh, the publisher from Autocourse, Michele Molino, who in turn brought Forex to the discussion, and everyone agreed that it was a 76-lap race that ended at the three-hour mark. But this leaves the question, how did Motorsport Magazine come to report it as a 77-lap event at the time? Well, we're still working on that, and we may actually never know. I'd love to see the room that that, uh, that, that particular group of people <laughs> ruined. Like, an extremely tall tower made of a... Uh, made of a pie <laughs> made of a, maybe of an asterisk or something where where, do, where does that where does that conclave uh, where does that conclave congregate uh sure well well sadly I, I don't want to ruin it i don't want to burst your bubble here but sadly it is only a virtual conclave uh, we just email back and forth and arrive at whatever uh, answer we think is the oh. correct one but you you know we do need to do this with some style i do agree and i think next time we do it we should have some white smoke burning somewhere 
to, to show that we have decided <laughs> that we've made a decision. My, 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 in my mind, it was very Lord of the Rings, you know, <laughs> kind of the, 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 the Kelly in the tallest tower. Yes. Um. <laughs> yes. I, from, and, and from now on, that is how we will do these things. Um, now, 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 now you've, now you've gone, gone into a different avenue of thought. Uh, yeah, next time, that's how we will bring this together. Sean, how can data like this get missed? And for so long, this can't happen very often, if at all, in the complex and thoroughly researched world of Formula One. This has got to be incredibly rare, isn't it? it it's very rare indeed. I mean, I could probably count these sorts of discrepancies on the fingers of one hand in the decades that I've been working in Formula One. Um, part of the reason why I think this one has lain sort of undiscovered or undiscussed for more than seven decades is because it happened so long ago, for start, 1952, back in the days when records were very, you know, quite sketchy to find. And it, this all long predates the invention of the World Wide Web. And furthermore, no one's gone near the record really since the World Wide Web became, um, you know, a, a common thing in society. The last time we really got close to the record was in 1992 when Nigel Mansell led something like 220, 230 laps in a row. Um, and of course, you know, we didn't have the internet to do instant checks back in 1992. Um, so the fact that Ascari's record has sat up there for so long, no one's probably really thought to double check and notice that, that some websites have different answers to other websites. And it was only when Verstappen started to approach this record and I started to cross-reference, and I thought, hang on a minute, one official record says this and another official record says that. Which one of you is right? Your eyes must have absolutely lit up. Now, you've had a long, beautiful and distinguished career in the world of statistics. How does this rank in terms of strange moments for you? This is definitely one of the oddest. Um, the previous time we had our statistics conclave, uh, when we had black smoke, not white smoke, um, was when we were trying to decide how the Italian Grand Prix organisers had arrived at how many Italian Grand Prix there had been down the years. Really gives an insight into our social calendar. It really should join us sometime. It's really good fun. Anyway, um, yes, this is definitely one of the oddest ones. And there's the final twist in the tale, and that is the, the ACF, the Automobile Club of France, that organised that race declared the results at exactly three hours. Now, back then, what would happen would be, much as now, you would reach the time limit, and then, you know, you'd do, get, finish the end of the lap you're on, and, and that's how they would call the results. But it seems that the French Grand Prix of 52, the result was called at dead on three hours. So you see the official results, it says three hours, zero seconds, and so on. Now, it didn't matter where the drivers were on the track. It didn't matter where, you know, if they were close to the finish line or not. That was the end of the race. Um, and there are some sources during, during our wonderful conclave that were offered that said Ascari <laughs> led 75.876 laps of this race. Now that, if we were to apply that, that means that the consecutive laps of the record stat, which has stood since 1952, is not 305, not 304, but 303.8576 laps. Now, I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen, what if Max Verstappen had been on the 304th lap, the lap that would break that record, and his car had broken down in the final sector of the lap? We would never have known whether or not he had broken the record. <laughs> Amazing. Honestly, amazing stuff, Sean. Does this make you want to dive back into the stats and find more errors? Surely there's more out there after all of this, just sitting quietly, smirking, undiscovered. 
Well, yes, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure there are, they are out there, but of course, by the nature of the beast, I don't know where to look because you never know where there might be errors along the way. There are always errors at some point, and some statistics can be open to interpretation. The ones I always say most open to interpretation is on-track passes. You know, what if it is it an on-track pass, or did the guy run off the road, or you know, did he have a mechanical problem? You know, you, that that can be interpreted by different humans in different ways. And I would ask our listeners to point out any other anomalies along the way. Some I've seen down the years, that probably the most egregious, Fuji 1976, Masahiro Hasimi was one of the local drivers in that race. And at the time, on the day, it was said that he'd set the fastest lap of the race. Now, he was the only guy there who was running Dunlop tires. You remember, one of the most famous races in history, it's very, very wet, James Hunt won the world title, Nicky Lauda pulled out. Hasimi set the fastest lap of the race on these Dunlop wet tires and everybody said well everybody else had good years he had an advantage and it turned out a few days afterwards that uh, the Japanese organizers realized there was a timing error and it was not true at all Hasimi had not set the fastest lap and it was corrected in all the Japanese publications but after most of the circus had gone back to Europe and of course none of them were Japanese speakers and no one thought to call you know somebody in Tokyo and say hey that fastest lap are you sure it was right so for years thereafter, the record book said that Masahiro Hasimi set the fastest lap of that race. But actually, all along, the fastest lap belonged to Jacques Lafitte. And only in recent times has that begun to be shown as being the correct fastest lap in the record books. Um, there have been other weird anomalies, you know, Jean Berra leading the championship without ever, winning a, without ever winning a race in his career. Hans Heyer, the only man to um, be de- to fail to qualify for a race, fail to start a race, fail to... Uh, finish a race and be disqualified from a race and they were all the same race um, and then you've got things like Sterling Moss driving cars b- driven, driving cars by two different constructors in the same race at Aintree uh, in uh, 61 I think it was um, but as for actual mistakes uh, yeah please answers on a postcard or whatever counts as the digital equivalent of that and we'll have to get together another statist- statistical conclave and work out what is the correct answer yeah, I think when those mistakes finally come to light, that the tower might just collapse uh, spontaneously under its own steam and, and settle into the earth and the conclave will finally be disbanded and allowed to go about their true purpose. And uh, I, I, can, I hope one day that all of those anomalies are ironed out by a brilliant self, Sean. I can say that there was considerable horror in my eyes when I realised that, wait a minute, this Ascari record that we've been chasing might not be right. It might be one lap less than that. Oh, what have I done? And initially, of course, you think I've made a terrible mistake, but then you double check the records and realize, no, it's the record books that are wrong. We've got two different records here, which one's correct? So yeah, it's um, one of the more unusual occurrences in my weird and wonderful life of doing Formula One stats. Great stuff, Sean. A true world exclusive. I'm not afraid to say it. That actually gave me the feels. And if you want to give Sean some props for his statistical nous, which you should absolutely do, don't forget you can drop us a line on social media using the hashtag AramcoF1Focus. Right, now it's time to turn the focus squarely onto the subtleties of driving technique in Alex's performance focus. Alex, what have you got for us today? Well, I was very interested uh, throughout the Austrian Grand Prix, particularly by the papaya cars, papaya turning chrome, of course, uh, for the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. One car upgraded in the hands of Lando Norris, the other car non-upgraded in the hands of Oscar Piastri. And it threw me into a world of 
of interesting political insight within the teams and performance insight as well. What can they upgrade in the season? Who gets those upgrades? Why do they get them and how effective can they really be after the cars have essentially been designed? So, uh, yeah, that's what I'd like to talk about in my uh, performance focus. Okay, so when we talk about upgrades, we obviously know what that means. Broadly speaking, um, they might be bringing in a new aero part or something more drastic, whether it's the floor or whatever. How do teams manage to do this mid-season and make gains? Is there a bunch of people back at the factory constantly working on upgrades as we go through the season? So what's the reality of that that we don't necessarily always see? I mean, obviously, in the early season, teams will hit the track in testing. And and there's such limited testing now in Formula One. They, they've they worked through their simulation. They've worked through their, their driver in the loop simulation. But it's only really when you hit the track and we see that first interview uh, with the driver and their face is either smiley and happy or they look a little bit forlorn and white and frightened um, that, that we realise what the team have actually got. They then, of course, know from the data they gather through testing what needs to be fixed and what can logistically be achieved. I mean, often we see these key upgrade points, don't we, through the year. The Barcelona uh, Grand Prix has been the typical one because it's the one they can compare uh, back-to-back with so much historical data. Um, Then it's a case of prioritising what is able to be achieved by the engineers through the year and, uh, and delivering not only what can be achieved with a car, but also what can logistically and realistically be taken and tested where, you know, you might have a front wing ready to go a few days before the Grand Prix in Japan, but it's still got to go out there. It's still got to be fitted to the car. It's still got to be tested in free practice. So there are all of these considerations made even more difficult in recent years by the cost cap, which forces teams to consider whether they're going to go for the full upgrade package on this car and strangle absolutely everything out of it all the way to the end of the year, or, as there's been much discussion about in recent times, whether they're going to jump and look towards next year's car and prioritise their engineering time, wind tunnel time, and uh, and budget on that. Alex, why is it that um, only one driver can often get upgrades and, and how does that play out politically within a team? I, I actually interviewed Oscar Piastri's manager, Mark Webber, on the stage in Austria about this and they were, while they were quite excited that Lando Norris got the upgrades for Austria, obviously they knew that it was kind of a throwaway weekend for Piastri. Um, or, you know, is there ever instances where teams prefer the test, put the parts with the lesser driver in case the upgrades would be awful? It's so politically interesting, isn't it? I mean, you look at the weekend Oscar Piastri had down in 16th over a lap down. Lando Norris then picks up his 12 points for fourth place, which he'll carry through to the rest of the season because the team just managed to... I mean, those those upgrades weren't supposed to be ready until the British Grand Prix at Silverstone, but the team managed to do a good job, get them ready for Austria, and they get thrown on Lando Norris's car. In this case, the reason cited is because Lando Norris is the more experienced driver, more of the incumbent driver, and therefore should get the benefit of those upgrades. Uh, but equally, you're, you're absolutely right, Sean. If they prove to be... Terrible, difficult, 
unbalanced the car, you've then disadvantaged the driver you want to put uh, further up the grid potentially, or then you feel might have the best chance of evaluating those upgrades. Equally, it's so interesting psychologically between the drivers, and I think Piastri actually dealt with it extremely well at McLaren because... There are very few other times, other than when uh, one driver is moved past another with team orders or, you know, uh, or, or very few real other times where teams actually really have to come out and overtly prioritize one driver over another. You've got to make sure you don't dishearten a young driver like Piastri, and and the, and a driver in Piastri's position has to uh, have a very specific mindset to make sure that they don't they don't let their head drop, they don't start to think and feel, uh, you know, uh, this team don't care about me, this team don't this team don't love me, this team don't want me to succeed, uh, and just wait until it's their turn uh, to get those parts and, and deliver on track when it is. Yeah, he seems quite level-headed, doesn't he, Piastri? He deals with these things quite well. What sort of upgrades tend to make the most impact? Is, is it the floor, the side pods? I mean, I was, I was watching a video online earlier and they were talking about the, uh, the, the side mirror housing and the you know, adjustments to, to things as granular as that. Well, what is it that really makes an impact for them? Well, I mean, in McLaren's case, it was more of an aerodynamic upgrade, moving to that sort of undercut package in the side pod amongst other aerodynamic changes. As a driver, you come to learn that aero is everything. There's a reason why almost all technicians and engineers working in Formula One have a background in in aerodynamics. Um, And you come to love aerodynamic upgrades because they give you a little bit of everything. If it's a fast track, they give you the opportunity to take off drag. If it's a, if it's a track that requires high-speed cornering, they give you that opportunity to carry a little bit more downforce. And you can paint aero over the top of so many different balance issues and give yourself a much better car. Everything else in a driver's mind is marginal, but uh, some things that the team put on the car can really surprise you. For example, if they put, if a team make an upgrade with regards to cooling, you can get the kind of secondary effect where uh, a cooling duct might be uh, be able to be run smaller, which gives you a secondary aerodynamic benefit, which allows you to run less drag and, and have more downforce. So Every single part of a racing car is important. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. Anything the team managed to upgrade, anything the team managed to improve is going to be a tangible benefit. But it, it must be said, when the when your uh, engineer comes to you and goes, we've made a little bit of a tweak to how we're flying the floor this weekend and we think it's going to give us a few more points of rear downforce... Your your little drive the little driver inside jumps for joy uh, before the start of the weekend and and that's and that's what it's all about, isn't it? And and they they jump for joy for good reason because you know it kind of makes sense that an upgrade will bring you performance, but they don't always work, do they? And when, with the teams simulating back at the factory, there's lots of tech, lots of data points. They've run uh, simulations constantly to get to that point. Why would they fail? I mean, I know it doesn't happen that often, but surely with all that technology and data, they should just be better every time. 
Well, so they run them through uh, their their technical tools, which of course are are very limited now uh, by the limitations of aerodynamic time uh, given to the teams um, based on their performance in the championship. Then they'll they'll put them through their driver out of the loop simulator, which effectively then drives a trillion laps in the car uh, and works out how it would behave in all scenarios. Then they'll move on to the driver in the loop simulator, which is where your Mick Schumacher for Mercedes, for example, comes in and starts to evaluate those data points. What you're relying on, though, when you come and apply these up potential upgrades to an already built uh, simulation model is is you're relying on the fact that all of the other elements of your simulation model are correct. For example, the way the tires squash, uh, the the way the uh, the way the aerodynamics are currently moving. Because if you're working with moving goalposts, anything extra that you then apply to those simulations uh, is then incorrect by a a considerable way out. The big one, of course, being the tire modelling. Pirelli being defensive naturally, being the tyre supplier for Formula 1 and not necessarily wanting other tyre brands to gain information about how to make a Formula 1 tyre may choose to not supply exactly the full tyre information to the teams in terms of how they deform, how they uh, how they work thermally on track. So there's an element of guesswork that goes into some of the most basic elements of their simulations. One of the things that drivers who have learned to race on a simulator suffer with most is that they find that the car, when it reaches the racetrack, it is not really the same in how the tyre behaves as, as the car on the simulation. So those little fudges, if you catch one just wrong, can put you a long way out on the modelling of the upgrade. I know there's another Brundle out there once who once remarked that um, sometimes the engineers would say the upgrades were so good, it makes it sound like he was going to run into the back of himself when he went out on the <laughs> racetrack, which I always thought was a great way to, to, to say how um, engineers' faith in upgrades can somebody, sometimes be a little bit optimistic. You know, engineers work on things from a, a very textbook and technical perspective uh, i'll never forget the latest uh, specification just after the regulation change of, of mercedes that came out in bahrain and uh, in the first day of testing lewis hamilton was having awful problems with the rear snapping i don't know if you recall snapping down into turn 13 really struggling to get the rear on the road and i looked at it and i thought there is an aerodynamicist who's run that car in an absolute straight line in a wind tunnel and gone, fantastic, it makes rear downforce X. Then you add a bit of roll, a bit of wind, the driver slightly out on the braking point, a little bit of sand blowing in from the Bahraini desert. And of course, the downforce, the beautiful downforce that the engineer has marked off on his tick sheet when the car was running fabulously on their rolling road, it doesn't quite exist. <laughs> so they are notoriously optimistic <laughs> when it comes to how much downforce the car is producing. Are upgrades mid-season commonplace in other championships? Let's take the World Endurance Championship just for example. Do they have the resources to run these sorts of developments if something isn't working right? Well, there are so many championships that are 
that are not development formulae. I mean, development formulae are few and far between now. You know, you're, you're basically dealing with the World Endurance Championship outside of Formula One. You're dealing with the World Endurance Championship, which, it, while it is a development formula, is balanced in terms of its performance between the cars. So, I mean, arguably, uh, and there will be there will be sticklers for balance of performance regulations that might disagree with me, but there's not a lot of point in really making great leaps forward in terms of the performance of the car because you'll only ever be balanced then backwards into the clutches of the others. What race teams all around the world do is continuously try to improve. Even a Formula 2 team will try to fit the spec bodywork they're allowed to use a little bit more sweetly. We'll try to clean the bearings up. We'll try to give the drivers absolutely everything they can. But I think Formula One is really unique, um, to be honest, in terms of having these revolution upgrade packages uh, throughout the year that turn up and uh, and take a car from you know languishing in the midfield and just throw them into uh, into the battle at the front of the field. Uh, and that's because it is a development formula with with so much more budget, let's get real, than anything else out there in the world of motorsport. To find another formula where those, those upgrades can be so revolutionary to the performance of the car is very unlikely. So... Mika Hakkinen recently said that he expected McLaren to make some big, I think the word he used was even huge gains and maybe even challenge Red Bull. Can you actually polish something that just doesn't want to be cleaned up? Is that really legitimate chat? I think there are two points here. Um, The first is that when you develop a car yourself. I mean, Lando Norris came out this week and said, yeah, it was fine, but I was almost crashing on every corner. It was very fast, but uh, yeah, not not quite the drivability that I was looking for. When you build a car from scratch and, you, and you've not got the develop, the hard development miles on the road, you can find basic problems. So critical out of balance aerodynamic parts or uh, underbody behavior that you weren't expecting, things like that. And actually, you can then, you know, control out delete a very simple solution that puts the car back into the balance window and move yourself in what is in Formula One terms a massive way up the grid. So I do think it's possible. You know, if you if they have a, a, a significant and quite basic problem with that McLaren, a.k.a. it has too much high-speed understeer, you can rock up with a new front wing uh, and, and make the difference. Um, so so that's the first point as to why those big jumps and, and, and Mika might be right. I tell you what, the man's not often wrong. He's, uh, he's a wily character, isn't he? But the other thing is Formula One, I think, as well as it is unique in having its development life cycles that run really short through the year. So, you know, much discussion at the moment about whether Red Bull should be allowed at this stage in the season with such a lead in the World Championship with Max Verstappen to move in to, uh, you know, trying to compound that advantage by working on next year's car 
already at this stage in the year or earlier than others. What that does mean, though, is for a team who haven't got the necessarily the ultimate front-running pace, if they continue to develop their car, as Mika is sort of intimating there throughout the rest of the year, you can get this interesting crossover, which is why in years past we've seen teams that have stolen a march early on in championships eventually be involved in closer and closer and closer and closer racing through the end of the year. So I think... Both of those factors uh, will play a role, along with the fact that I don't believe Red Bull, given the political uh, spectrum of Formula One at the moment, are going to want to look like an all-conquering force for the whole season long. And uh, and so all of those factors uh, line up to suggest that Mika, as usual, is right. Well, I don't want to sound like a cynic around here or pour cold water on the enthusiasm <laughs> of a two-time world champion, but I think there's a greater chance of Mick Hakkinen coming out of his sabbatical and starting in Formula 1 again than there is of McLaren challenging Red Bull this season. I hope that I have this played back to me later in the season to show me how wrong I am. <laughs> well, to be fair, I think you're probably right, actually. The, the, the challenging Red Bull... Maybe not, but I think the jump in performance is clearly there. We're going to see the aerodynamic package this weekend at Silverstone play out a little bit more than we do around the realistically five corners of Austria. So uh, let's see what they got. Have some of that, Mika. Um, Now, Alex, I'm going to put you on the spot. I like to do this. With your crystal ball polished and primed and with an eye on all the team upgrades that are happening, who do you think will see the most performance gains over the next few races? Oh, goodness me. Um, It's an interesting one. And I'm going to throw you back to a a comment James Vowles made uh, a few weekends back where he basically said those teams who didn't invest in equipment uh, or or didn't have the funds to invest in equipment uh, before the cost cap came into force are an ongoing disadvantage throughout the season because not only can they not now buy that equipment on the basis of the cost cap, they also uh, don't have that equipment to use to efficiently evaluate and develop their cars. So I think the most performance gains, unfortunately, are going to be from the teams with financial horsepower that pre-exists the cost cap and also teams, you know, Uh, through this stage of the year uh, are able to get those upgrades as we're sort of into a a sequence of European races. Our teams are able to get those upgrades to the racetrack more efficiently. I think Mercedes have another jump in them uh, at this stage of the year. And I would uh, and I would probably put my impetus there in terms of the team who have a massive facility and the ability to uh, to throw to throw resource at it. Very good. Um, financial horsepower. I like that a lot. Um, thanks, Alex. Massively illuminating as ever. We're so used to hearing about upgrades, but this has put a whole new spin on how I think of them from now on. Right, it's now time for our Aramco Focus segment, which this week has an Aston Martin flavour. Now, if you were paying attention over the British Grand Prix weekend, you might have noticed some new stickers on the two AMR23s driven by Fernando Alonso and Lance Stroll. Yes, the legendary Valvoline brand is back on the Formula 1 grid as part of a new strategic partnership with the Silverstone-based team. 
Valvoline is incredibly deep in motorsport history, going back to the first American race in 1895. Its products have been used by winners across all branches of motorsport, from Formula One to NASCAR, drag racing to rallying. And here to tell us more is Roger England, Vice President and Chief R&D Officer at Valvoline. Our new partnership with Austin Martin creates this position where we're now the official lubricant partner of the Austin Martin Formula One team. I mean, how cool is that? What we provide to the team is currently chassis fluids like brake fluid, shock oil, and they're using our low VOC brake cleaner in their shop, some stuff like that. As time goes by, we're continuing to deploy products in other areas like grease, hydraulic oil, and even things like hydrophobic coatings. The thing about racing that I've always been taught is that it's about eliminating all the variables you can and then optimizing the ones that are left over. And so what we're gonna do going in is meet their requirements to the best of our ability, then let everybody get comfortable with that, then we start the optimization. That's what we've done with Hendrick and NASCAR in the past, and that's what we continue to do in a lot of, uh, a lot of areas where we participate at this level. This is a big league. Vaveline has a rich history playing in this space. And for us to be able to get back into this now and, and bring the technology that we've learned and the things that we know, you know, it's, it's, it's really exciting. I mean, this is a turbocharged 15,000 RPM engine that has kinetic and, and thermal energy. How could that not be cool as an engineer to get to work on that kind of stuff, knowing that all the gates are open? We're not worried about cost here. We're not worried about all the stuff that we normally have to balance. We just want to be the best we can possibly be. And it's like getting to drive wide open for a while. You know, it's like there's no speed limit here. It's, it's big fun for engineers. We are excited to be at the table with Honda. We already had a meeting with them and started talking through what we needed to do and what direction they wanted things to go. This new generation power plant, they've increased the energy recovery technology, which is something we have a history in. We, we have our own hybrid line of oils that, that we premiered for that market because we understand that the duty cycle of those vehicles is different. As we try to achieve the highest pinnacle of performance, we naturally want to decrease parasitic losses from friction and things like that. As we do that, if we keep fueling constant, we increase speed, we increase horsepower, we increase acceleration. If we, on the other hand, want to keep horsepower constant, we can then decrease fueling, which decreases carbon emissions and increases efficiency and lowers the cost of people for driving their own car around. And that's something that can make an immediate impact on the market and on the carbon emission levels in the world. And so that's something we're always working for. If you look at any of the press releases when it was first announced, they're constantly talking about R&D. They're excited to have downstream R&D. They're excited to look at what the opportunities are to make an immediate impact in carbon emissions and emissions lowering technologies globally. There's a lot of work going on in EV, but that's really kind of a long-term play. The things that we're working on with Aramco right now and the things that we're learning from our racing experience that we just talked about in Formula One, NASCAR, NHRA, drag racing, all the venues that we play in, will have a lot more immediate impact on lowering carbon emissions, and that's really where we're headed. 
So there you have it. Valvolina back in F1 with Aston Martin. And that's a partnership well worth keeping an eye on over the coming years. We'll be back with you again soon for more stats, more performance insight and more F1 chat. In the meantime, be sure to like, follow or subscribe to the Race F1 Tech Show podcast feed to ensure you never miss an episode of that podcast or this one. Sean, another episode recorded in an airport lounge. You're getting used to this, my friend. What's next for you? What's next is I'm headed for Silverstone, where on Sunday I'll be interviewing Otmar Safnauer, who last week in Austria had the, t- the temerity to say to the audience, have I done my research when I was interviewing him? Mm. Well, this week it's payback time, Mr. Safnauer. We'll see how that interview goes. Punchy, punchy. And Alex, heading to Silverstone as well? Yeah, I'm going to that interview. Uh, but by the sound of it, that sounds unbelievable. Um, yes, of course, I will be trackside shouting at cars as opposed to uh, F one HQ shouting at cars. Terrific stuff. Well, thank you both as ever for joining me. Until next time, it's goodbye from Alex. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sean. Bye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. The Athletic. <laughs> 